Hello, pop pickers. Welcome to episode 55 of the Great Divide podcast and the second part of the Buffalo Skinner's Deep Dive. We're not going to talk much here. We're going to go straight into where we left off last time with Long Way Home. The Long Way Home. Here we have what I think is is like a sister song to What Are What Are You Working For? I almost said What Are We Working For? Um, <laughs> yeah, th- this is a song that's almost in the exact same mold as that one. It's got it's got the verses that um, written in that Rocket in the Free World style that I mentioned before, where where each verse is kind of bringing up a new situation or a new character, uh, a new little anecdote that that is supposed to sort of reinforce the overall theme of the song. Um, and again, the theme of this song sort of comes back to corruption, uh, hypocrisy, a lot of religious hypocrisy that seems to come through in this one. Um, and a lot of American references here too. And uh, I think I, I got a strong American vibe in what are, what are you working for? <laughs> Almost did it again. Um but you really start to get it here. And I think, uh, as we've talked about on the roundtable discussion, there, there is a big sense of an American type of theme on a lot of this album, which, which always interested me because I don't think Stuart lived here at all. Um, at this point, I know that he, I, I read somewhere that he had had a house in America. I don't know if, if it was at this time. I mean, we all know that he moved to Florida shortly, uh, a couple years or a year after this album came out. But I'm always interested in like what seemed to kind of conjure all of these uh, lyrical um, stabs at American culture and, and that kind of thing. Um, I mean, I know it's out there anyway. It's it's probably front and center for a lot of people around the world. But he just seems to really go after it here, which is interesting to me. Um, and you get a lot of references in this song. I, I think this song is really there rocking in the free world on this album. I mean, musically, there's so much about it that reminds me of that song. It's kind of from the way it begins to the lyrical approach to the chorus. It's got like that big anthemic chorus that's very simple, very simple um, lyric, uh, searching for the long way home, keep on rocking in the free world. And it's got that fist pumping type of feel to it. Strangely enough, this song is one that just never did it for me. I, and I... I can't really, I mean, there are a couple of things that I could criticize about it. For example, I never really liked the verse melody very much. It, it almost seemed like a little too, uh, sing songy with that kind of da, 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 da. 
There's just something about that melody that never really appealed to me that much. Um, but there, but there's aside from that, there's really not a lot that I can criticize or say that this isn't good or I don't necessarily like this. I mean, it's a it's an intense song, another big, gigantic slab of big country rock. I think this is probably the most traditional rock song on the album, most likely. Um, if there is another one, I. I Maybe I'll pick that up later, but off the top of my head, this seems like the most traditional feel of a, a traditional rock feel. I mean, even even the harmonizing guitars that they have in this, which is a classic big country trope. I mean, even those almost almost sound more thin Lizzy than big country in some ways. I mean, they've got like a little bit of that big country feel to it, but th- this song strikes me more as like classic rock. Yeah, I agree. And what are what are you working for had that element too, but it had enough in it for me musically that was big country that that saved that from from becoming the classic rock thing to me. It had it had more of a Celtic feel to it. Well, I don't really get much Celtic feel on this one. Um, but musically, I mean, the guitars are are really vicious again. It's a ferocious guitar playing on the song. Really cool uh, guitar sounds. I think uh, even in the that, that kind of staccato-y thing that's played at the outro of the song and in the beginning of the song, um, which again, takes me back to rocking in the free world musically. Uh, but it, it's cool. It's like kind of like, bah, bah, da, 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 and the little harmonic thing. I like that. Mm. Um, I, I like the chorus too. I think it's ver- really catchy and it's, it's really anthemic, but there's just, I don't know. There's something about this song that, it, that has never really ranked high for me. And, as I said, we we got the same lyrical approach to this that we do with "What Are You Working For?" But for some reason, this one it's not that far removed, but it just doesn't work as well for me. Um, and I, again, he's talking about all kinds of different things. Um, the one that really does resonate with me is is the discussions and the the comments about what seems to be TV evangelism. And I remember hearing an interview with Stewart. I think it was around this time, um, or shortly before this, where he was talking about being in America and someone was asking him about watching television there. And he was just talking about how, how amazing television was. And he specifically mentioned watching televangelists and how he was really shocked by that, you know, and and that, that approach (laughs) with, Mm. with this whole lay your hands on the television and send me your money and you'll, you'll be healed or saved or whatever. And that was kind of a big thing going on around the time this album came out too. I mean, we had a lot of um, big news stories, not far removed from this album with TV evangelists who were disgraced and found with whores and you know, <laughs> found milking and built their followers. Yeah. So there you go. And, uh, <laughs> tearful pleas of forgiveness and all that stuff. Um, so I, I really, because that's, that kind of thing just infuriates me and always has, that's one portion of the lyrics that, that rang true to me. Um, mm-hmm. some of the other stuff didn't really, hit his home even though uh, even though there's some good visceral lines in here like uh i think the best line is a half a million nixon babies some with toys and some with rabies i think that's a great line mm-hmm. um but still as a whole i i guess probably the one line that that sort of maybe underscores the theme of the song best is 
underneath your own safe sky, you may never wonder why someone never made their peace. Some have never been released. It's almost kind of a condemnation of, of people who just retreat into their own bubble uh, mm-hmm. of apathy. And as long as they're safe, um, and we, you get this criticism a lot, I think in the West too, and, and, and certainly in America where people, you know, will say, you know, things are good for you. So, you, but, but look what's happening in other parts of the world. Um, take your head out of your, out of your cell phone or, or your constant plea or demand for, to be entertained and look what's happening in other portions of the world. And just, just because you're safe right now doesn't mean you always will be. That's kind yeah. of the feeling that I get from these lyrics. And, and those lines are the ones that works the best for me because then he stops using a random example, but actually has something to say. Yeah. That is, that is more universal and, uh, and it works much better immediately, but sadly it, he doesn't stay on that path. Yeah. I mean, right after that, he goes into the fires in the LA sky. And that's, uh, I think a lot of people will be familiar with, with that reference. Some of it probably won't be, but that's a reference to, uh, the, the LA riots that we had out here, um, after the Rodney King, uh, beatings in America where a, a black man, Rodney King was beaten just ferociously by police officers. And it was all called on video. And uh, initially, at least none of them were convicted. They were all let go. And um, that sparked these these huge riots at the time. And obviously, Stewart was referencing those uh, in those lines and something that that struck him. So. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of interesting things about the song uh, musically and lyrically, but it's still it's it's probably the first. I I don't want to go so far as to say misstep for me on this album, but it's it's the first song on the album that doesn't really step up and command my attention. And it never did. I have to say it never, it never really did. They always played this song live back then and it sounded great. I remember when I saw them live, how great this song sounded and it was, it was huge. But, um, I don't know, something about the content of this tune, uh, and lyrically and musically, even though there's nothing I can point to and say this is bad, just never, never really gripped me. And that probably is coming through in my, uh, sort of vague analysis of the song, but it's it's one that I don't rate that highly on this album. So Damn it, Tom, why didn't you give us a deep analysis? <laughs> I know. Give you your analysis, but not deep analysis. Yeah. Well, uh, I shouldn't have said that because now I need to come up with a deeper analysis and I don't know if I have it. <laughs> um like a lot of the songs on this album, this is obviously a barnstormer. Loads of layers of guitars, lots of harmonies both vocal and instrumental harmonies, and it does have an uplifting feel. But um, at the same time, it lacks something. And what I feel this song lacks is, for one, a strong melody. But that is fine. I mean, the song can rely on more energy and pounding the message out there. And that's pretty much what it does. Like like you said, I guess what I would say is it has less big country trademarks and more uh, straight hard rock number. But uh, if you want to rely on the message, that's fine. Let's look at the message. And I have a quote from Stuart where he says, in concert in Germany in 1993, he introduces the song as, this is a song about trying to find yourself. And again, this is the second time he has introduced a song a certain way. And I go back to the lyrics with new insight and I don't see it. But uh, just like what you're working for, this is obviously a song that uh, has lots of stories, doesn't tell one story. It contains many individual examples to get a point across. And I think the the problem with that is then you need to rely on the chorus 
to uh, to deliver the punchline. And it doesn't really deliver a punchline. The chorus is one line. Searching for the long way home. Nothing else. So you have nothing to go on. You have all these stories. And uh, you read the first verse and assume, ah, oh, this is a song about television evangelists. Oh, let let have at them. But it's not really about them. It's just that verse. <laughs> and uh, so you have some references to international drama in the China Sea. I, I have no idea what that is. I don't either. No, that that's the danger of taking perhaps a red-hot story from the day and putting it in. And 23 years removed, nobody knows or remembers what exactly that was about. But obviously the L.A. Uh, riots are big enough and we will remember these things. And obviously those happened in 1992 just as the song was written. So he really put this in the song as it was very fresh. So um, he used what was around him and he put it in there. But I just think it's too random. I don't see a red thread between these things. Television evangelists and drama in the China Sea and riots in L.A. I don't get it. Yeah. And, and the punchline? Searching for a long way home. I mean, I'm searching for a long-lost punchline to the song. I, I don't see it. <laughs> so uh, it's fine the first time you hear it, searching for the long way home. And perhaps it's okay the second time. But as you get into the song's end section, it really starts dragging. And what helps immensely is that the lines are sung very well by Stuart and Tony. Wonderful harmonies. Their voices come across really strong. And the playing continues to have that uplifting feel from previous songs. So, even though I know in my mind this is dragging a bit, I end up not minding listening to this because it rocks, it is uplifting, it's energetic, I love the delivery of it, it's very infectious, but ultimately it, it, it doesn't have a clear message to me. It, it's just blah, 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 <laughs> blah, blah, yeah. blah. And that's kind of what, how I feel when you said I don't mind. I, I, that's probably the best way I could describe the song. I don't mind this song. <laughs> that's how I feel about it now one thing I do mind I think the song is too long it's nearly six minutes long yeah yeah so shortening some of that mad repetition of chorus would have given the song a much more acceptable length removed unnecessary repetition and perhaps taken away part of my grievance with the song that the less repetitive then it becomes more like a short snappy song this should be a short and snappy song it's, this, it's designed and musically and lyrically everything points to short snappy Wham Bam Thank You Ma'am song, but six minutes, that's the longest song thus far, and it's madness. <laughs> so uh, I'm discovering that the repetition of choruses becomes a common point for me on this album. I mean, I mentioned Alone as a great example of where they did get it right, but there are some songs where they sing the chorus over and over and it becomes a fade. So I wish they focused a little stronger on that here and there for some of the songs on the album, and this is definitely one of them. Now, there's a lot to take away from it. And I think um, when you pick all the songs from the album to play live, this was one they sort of clung to. And some of the others were tried and dropped, and others perhaps weren't tried but should have. But this is one they clung to. And I guess it worked better live. You know, it doesn't matter what you sing. It's the energy, and people want to jump up and down, drink a beer, and say, whoa! Yeah, and it's a good live song. It is. It's, it's perfect for that. And that was not a knock, by the way. I, I do think it's perfect for that. But I, I think it doesn't come across an album. 
Yeah, I agree. And I, and I'm thinking back to, I think what, what, uh, probably set it up to not work for me was that owl that starts in the very beginning. <laughs> now that, that would be it takes very me right picky. back to heart of the world. <laughs> that would be picky. Yeah. And I'm sure Martin <laughs> Chambers is somewhere too. <laughs> I think of Martin Chambers actually being the one saying it. All right. So it sounds like both of us have this far lower on our list than the public opinion. I'm going to start by asking you what yours is. I just, I just changed it while, while you were talking. <laughs> it sunk, right? It's number 12. Really? <laughs> yeah, it's my number 12 song. What was it? It was number 11, but now it's number 12. Yeah, you see, I still have it at number 11. <laughs> oh, interesting. But I but I, I could see arguments now. But as I was talking, I, I just thought, yeah, I mean, as I was talking, I looked at what was number 12, and I thought, I think I do like that one a little bit more than Long Way Home. <laughs> so pretty even for me. Yeah, so it's, I'm gonna, it's, I'll keep mine. Uh, Eleven for me, twelve for you. What do you think the people have it at? I, I I saw some comments that seemed to rate it pretty highly, so I think they're gonna they're gonna go against us. Yeah, it, I, I'm gonna say five. Spot on. Are you serious? Well, wow. it's number five. I <laughs> mean, the um, sorry people. The average ranking is uh, five point five on the list. Of course, that places it number five for the scores totally. It got three number ones. And wow. zero number 12. So this is one of the three songs that didn't get a number 12 rating. And that frankly surprises me. I'm the first lot. one to give it a number 12. You are. I'm actually staying clear. So you, <laughs> you did it. And keep in mind now, everyone will say again, <laughs> doesn't mean I hate the song. It doesn't mean I hate it by any stretch of the imagination. It yeah, you've, you've, you've said this ever since we did the leap of faith dissection. I know. Doesn't like, mean I hate it. But invariably <laughs> I get that. It's like you you don't like Long Way Home. It's like I well, I, I don't love it. I certainly don't love it. Uh I, I, I think it's okay. And and on an album full of great songs, something's gotta be twelve. And this is twelve for me. Yeah, I would say that musically I uh appreciate it, but lyrically I think it's bad. It's it's it lacks a punchline and I don't see a red thread. And uh, what was Stewart's quote? Let me scroll up here. He said, this is a song about trying to find yourself. Is that what you get out of this song? <laughs> no, not really. I'm trying to find the meaning of the song. That's what it's about. I think he often said things from the stage that, that didn't necessarily jibe with a lot of the <laughs> lyrics. I, I've noticed that in other songs, too. I don't know if he just was like talking off the top of his head at the time. But yeah, I, don't, I, I mean, really, when I was reviewing all these songs, it really hit me for the first time more than ever that it really was almost like a rewrite of rocking in the free world and mm -hmm. it fit it fits that template so perfectly even even down to the uh to the one one line chorus repeated over and over again which kind of works better in rocking in the free world because it's like this sarcastic jibe uh or taunt almost uh, to people based on the bad things that he's mentioned in the verses but this is the same thing it's like uh Lots of bad examples in in, a, in the verses of of society, and then one line that's, I, I guess, in this sense, it's like humanity trying to find their way back home or their way together or whatever. But yeah, it rings it rings a little hollow at times on this one for me. Hey, Tom, it's fine. This is David Brown. 
calling in to talk about Buffalo Skinners. There's so much that I want to say here. I, I know I'm going to say it all wrong and get it all botched up. But uh, for me, I think I share a lot of the sentiments from reading what I'm seeing on Facebook about the uh, the album. It came out of nowhere when we were in America at the time. And I remember feeling very pessimistic when I found it. I think I even found it in like a discount bin at a record store. And I thought, oh, this is going to be lousy. And when I saw that Kansas and Ships were going to be on there as well, uh, my initial thought was, why are they doing this? They must be desperate. They don't have enough songs. They're just just trying something out. But I think over time, I've realized they they realized they had killer songs that needed to be re-recorded in the intensity that was on Buffalo Skinners. And I think that they did a really good job. And I, I much prefer those versions to the No, no Place Like Home versions. Um, <clears throat> I think the reason why this album means so much to me is because it was the first time I got to see the band live. Uh, I missed out when I was a kid on the Crossing Tour because the clubs they played wouldn't let underage kids in. And uh, when they toured the Seer, I was nowhere near any big towns and completely missed out there too. So I got to see him twice on back-to-back nights on this tour in Texas, and it just changed my life. It was everything and more that I hoped it would be. And hearing these songs played live, I think they opened up with Kansas, and it just you know knocked you completely off your feet. Um, so for me, the live shows are part, maybe even half the reason why I love this album so much. But in the long run, I think it's also aged really well. Um, I think... Simon's drumming is is very good, and I think the songs are good. Um, I think it's a little more straightforward. I know I shared I shared the album with a friend of mine at the time who loved The Crossing and was completely put off by that album, The Buffalo Skinners, just because it was too sort of mainstream sounding, lyrically and musically. And I kind of get that, but I think that it was a good move by the band in the long run. Um, I can't say enough good things. I think that all things considered, it's a really strong record. There was a lot of optimism. The tour in America appears to have touched a lot of people. It, it changed my life. I got to meet the band. The next night when they came out, I was in the front row again. And, you know, Stuart did a huge solo right in front of me on his knees. And it was just like, you know, he was playing to me. It was just, I can't, I, I have one story that so many other people share where they were personally touched by how, how much this band wanted to play to us. So anyway, I'm sure there's more I could say, but I'll leave it at that for now. Take care. The Selling of America. We have another quote from Stuart on this song, so I'm going to start with that when I have them. And this comes again from the Fox Record press release. That press release is uh, quickly becoming their biggest accomplishment as a record label for, for Big Country. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't certainly didn't do much after that. But uh, in this press release, Stuart says about the selling of America, the song is about the paranoia induced by the Japanese buying of U.S. properties. Now, that's a very interesting comment, and I'm going to get back to that. I'm going to park that for a while, but but keep this in mind. Before I go too deep, does this ring a bell to you? Oh, yeah, I, it definitely rings a bell. In fact, a lot, a lot of that, especially when it comes to the auto industry, 
um, and the overtaking of the American auto industry by uh, Japan and them purchasing American companies. And in fact, I think there was even a movie made about it, about the from the automotive industry perspective. Michael Keaton starred in it. I hmm. it was called it was called Gung Ho. I can't believe I remembered that. That's called Gung Ho. <laughs> and it's about a, an American car company that's purchased by a Japanese corporation and the culture shift there. So yeah, that, that was a, that was a big deal. And it, it still is to some degree. I know, I know that we often talk about competing with the Japanese and that kind of thing, but, um, uh, so yeah. they haven't bought everything yet. No, they haven't brought, bought everything. They no. have not. Okay. Well, well, we'll see how that goes. They damn <laughs> sure ain't bought me. <laughs> You're not cheap. You can say a lot of things about you, but you're, you're high maintenance and very expensive. <laughs> it's, uh, this is a very interesting song on a lot of levels. And it's another one when Tony contributed a lot of the music. And he has a writing credit for this song, along with Stuart. Uh, and I had to go and check his uh, collection of demos. I had to see if this was in there in any form, or if there was a song there that became The Selling of America. I, I don't think that's the case. But uh, Tony is involved in the music of this song, and uh, you can kind of hear it. This has a lot of uh, unique uh, chord structures to it. He has a very uh, progressive kind of approach sometimes to songs. And Bruce pretty much confirms this in the liner notes to the remastered version of the album, where he says, uh, originally, Tony's song. This song has the best groove on the album, as far as I am concerned. Unfortunately, it didn't make the live set. And obviously, we remember Tony's own comments, which I read out in the last episode, where he said, Selling of America is the stuff of genius. It's dramatic, anthemic, powerful, guitar-lick, mongus, pure theater. <laughs> so there seems to be a lot of love for this song from the band itself. Given this, it may appear a little strange that it was never performed live. Well, you know, just to jump in, just to yeah. jump in real quick, I, I uh, actually got an email from, from Bruce cause, because I asked him about the two songs that weren't played live, at least that we didn't think were played live. Mm. And he says, um, both Selling of America and Chester's Farm were Tony's music and Stuart wasn't keen to play them live. Um, so that's what he said about Selling of America, at least. And I'll talk about Winding Wind when we get to that. But, um, yeah, so for some reason he said Stuart wasn't keen to play them live. I, I'm not sure why, but, uh, mm. I guess he had the final say, apparently. Ah, clearly he had some sort of say. If someone vetoed something strongly, I, I doubt they forced it through. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, who knows? That, that's interesting. But but that could have been too. That could have been not necessarily they didn't like it. It could have been maybe the, the vocal was difficult for him or anything. You know, you don't know why. So No, you don't know why. And uh, I assumed actually that uh, they may have felt a little self-conscious touring the U.S. playing a song called Selling of America. Uh, that's a good point too. Uh, I don't know if, if that played into it at all because it could come across a certain way. I guess uh, we know the real reason now that you have it from, from the horse's mouth. So, Okay. Uh, personally, though, I certainly have a lot of love for this song. It's a very interesting song, both musically and lyrically. And we are coming out of a couple of songs at this point in the album, where Stuart has used examples of injustices and corruption and various kinds of bad deeds to make a larger point. And it seemed like we both had some issues with that approach, that uh, it seemed like a lot of random examples rather than painting a larger picture and, and a story, perhaps. The Selling of America has that approach to storytelling. This time the lyrics paint a complete story, its chapters and a complete whole and a punchline. It feels complete. It's not the bunches of examples we got to get a point across from before. So this works a lot better 
this it really does this this kind of proves my point in a way i I think this is really good mm. so uh, so let's take a look at the story on the surface this is made out to be some sort of uh, spy story really or undercover story and what i like about these lyrics is how they are drenched in romanticized older day spy jargon this is kind of like written in the style of spy movies out of the world war ii era and someone is out there checking stuff out figuring stuff out and sending back messages to headquarters about his findings. And this is a big part of the song, this descending of messages. So in the first verse you have... So the guy is still undercover, still in hiding, and sending messages back. And in the second verse... Same formula, get a message to someone, tell her this. And the third verse... Same thing again, get a message to someone, tell him this. So this is a guy who's out there undercover, figuring stuff out and sending these messages. Um, implying that he's, he's on the lead of some shit-hot stuff. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, you're kind of figuring out what that is as the song goes along. And the chorus basically delivers those the, the punchline and tells us what it is about. The selling of America happening now town by town, but not in an obvious manner. It's happening underground. People do not realize this. So we have to rely on our man underground to find out and expose this. And in the second verse, we learn more, where he says, our workers are doomed because an invasion is due. you got to call on General MacArthur. His name is actually a clue to what the song is about or who is behind all the stuff that goes on in the song, but it's not an obvious clue. So we need to reconstruct this a bit. Mm. We have a reference to General MacArthur, who is one of the most known U.S. military leaders from World War II. During that war, he fought in the Pacific region, and he was the general that accepted the official surrender from Japan in 1945. And he remained in Japan for many years after that, in effect being Japan's ruler during the occupation of Japan, which lasted until 1951. So General MacArthur oversaw sweeping economic, political, and social changes, I guess, in, in that country. So he is someone who is very familiar with Japan. And this is the one key Stuart is leaving us that this song is about, again, going back to the Fox uh, record press release, the paranoia induced by the Japanese buying of U.S. properties. He said this straight out in that press release, but he's far from being that direct in the actual song. And in fact, if you, re if you remove the MacArthur reference, there's not a single thing in this song that points even vaguely to Japan. So that is why you need to call General MacArthur and tell him that, you know, we need his help. You know, he, he's the Japan expert. He can, uh, he can fix the situation. So it's th that's a very clever bit. And we have the Fox Record press release really to, to thank us for being able to even reconstruct this, because otherwise I don't think I would have had a chance. So going back to the song, in the second verse, 
he warns us that the jobs of our workers are in jeopardy. And the third verse go even further. These buyers have now got even further. They have set their eyes on the seat of power as well, trying out the White House for size. So either they bought it or they bought the people in powerful positions. And the result is the same. It's all sold now. The selling yeah. of America is absolute at that point. That's such a great line, too. It I is love great. that line, trying out the White House for size. <laughs> it is. It is. And it's uh, it's not necessarily a super fleshed out story, and it may even be more than a little bit convoluted, but there's enough there to dig into, kind of like oh, yeah. how I just did. And I don't have any more knowledge about this song than any other people, really, but we've already been able to talk quite a bit about it and get a lot out of it, I think. So mm-hmm. to me, this is a complete spy story, and it really works. And as I mentioned earlier, I, I really love how these lyrics are drenched in romanticized, older-day spy jargon. Just phrases like getting a message to Martha, which which clearly is a reference to the world's most famous carrier pigeon. It refers to getting a message out by carrier pigeon, which gives it a certain period stamp on the whole. Oh, you know, you know what? I, I I never took it as that. I always took it as uh, the wife of George Washington, whose name was Martha Washington. Okay, so it could be a couple things then. But I never thought about that. Uh, that that could be uh, that could be it too. I don't know. I would. I always thought about that as Martha Washington. Better get uh, a message to Martha. Okay, and what would she do about it? <laughs> I don't know. What would General MacArthur do about it? <laughs> like, I, I just saw it as a as like a reference to her just to just to sort of tie it back into the founder of America, you know, basically George Washington. Oh, yeah, it could be. Yeah, uh, the getting a message to Martha ties into this whole sending of messages, which all these verses are full of. It's it's sending messages back and forth. And the carrier pigeon kind of uh, falls into this whole uh, the time period of the 30s, 40s, 50s, because in World War II, that was a much used uh, way. And these days, the carrier pigeons are unfortunately all but extinct. So uh, that's definitely off its day. The other Martha, that also is back in its day. So either way, it is a throwback to to that kind of time. But you know what? Listen to this. We're both right, because um, I just I'm looking at right now Martha the Pigeon, and it says she was named Martha in honor of the First Lady Martha Washington. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Wonderful on-the-spot research there. <laughs> well done. We both learned something. Yeah, definitely. No, yeah, but uh, and you have the general's name too. Like he, uh, if you're going to take that reference literally, he died in the 1960s, so he would have been mostly active in the 30s, 40s, somewhat 50s. So if that is the period the song is taking place, all these references make perfect sense. Uh, and support the the old style spy feel of the lyrics, but then again, back in those days, I doubt Japan was in a position to buy anything anywhere. So it's it's kind of like a modern day in in old day jargon. So mm. it, it's very cool. It's a, it puts a very unique spin on this. And uh, in addition to these these great lyrics, which I absolutely think are, are fantastic, I think the song has a lot of musical highlights too. And uh, Tony was not wrong when he called it the stuff of genius. It is that. And this is yet another boom straight into the song, straight into that kick-ass intro with that guitar line. So awesome. It's so awesome. (laughs) 
sometimes they go boom into it and they, they play it pretty straight. But this is more a arranged, carefully laid out intro that uh, it just grooves. And I love that guitar line. This is borderline prog rock almost. What a great guitar line. The verses are a little bit more muted than the rest of the song. So when Stuart gives the line about gotta get a message too, things aren't full blast. They are more keyed down. You hear mysterious sounds in the background. And do you know what the name of those those creaky percussion sounds, <laughs> what the name of that is? That's it's funny that you asked that because I was thinking about that. Um, and I, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what they are, but I can, when I first heard them, I was immediately taken to the song The Sailor because they're in The Sailor as well. Um, some form of that. If you go back and listen to the sailor on mm. on the Seer album, you'll hear that. Uh, it, it's not a shaker, but it's some sort of. There, there is a name for it. I think I heard it once, but I can't think of what it is. But it, it really does add a cool little. Uh, it, it adds something to that song. It definitely does add to the kind of sense of mystery musically. So yeah. it's, it's a cool little uh, thing there that's kind of subtle, but adds a lot. I think. It fits perfectly to a song that is meant to be a little bit more mysterious and a uh, little sort of subterfuge things going on. And then you have these mysterious, creaky little things going on there. So I think that's great. It gives yeah. the song a certain flair for sure. Yeah, it does sound like someone's walking up creaky steps or something. It's it's cool. Yeah, it is. And, uh, well, the million-dollar point. Here comes the dollar bombers. I get goosebumps every time that section comes up. Mm -hmm. First of all, I love that line. I absolutely adore it. But also, at that point, I know that I'm about to hear a fantastic solo, which eventually turns into the return of the bagpipe guitars. And uh, I think your sound collage from the roundtable said everything you need to. I think you put together a clip of someone crying over the sound of that section <laughs> to underline that. How, that was me. <laughs> I can't believe I had the foresight to record that when I first listened to it. No, it's I, uh, I knew it incredible. would come in handy. That manly crying. Is, yeah. <laughs> I think you gave that uh, that section the love it deserves. It it really underlines how important the return of that sound was. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it's. Um, it's also one of the few songs where the band actually came up with something musically for the outro part instead of just droning on the chorus over again and again. And I've, I've said this in the past. Alone was one example where they did a great outro. And I think this too, the, there is a playout section fitting within the mysterious mood of the song and the topics it deals with. So I think that's really fantastic. It goes out the way it should.
obviously uh, this isn't a resolved storyline. This is about someone who's finding out stuff. And the more stuff he finds out, the the more frantic he gets. And wild hair, big guy, the... Now you're trying out the weight house for size and uh, going all crazy <laughs> with it. And uh, it, the, the alarm has been rung and now it must be dealt with. But that's a very big country kind of way of dealing with the song. Sometimes there is an open-ended opening. I think the biggest example I can think of is uh, Red Fox, where you don't know how it ends, but uh, it's all let out and then it's up to you to figure it out. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. to me, this track feels a lot um, more ambitious than the tracks that surround it, really. A lot of the other songs on the album, and especially the mid part of the album, are more pummeling, straight rock beat, major riffing type song. And Long Way Home, in particular, pretty much a straight hard rock song. Good example of that. And Kansas, to some degree, too. It's a brilliant version, but it's played very straight, 4 4 type beat. Selling of America is different. Uh, I feel that is a much more ambitious song. It has much more stuff going on. And you hear it just in the intro, a much more accomplished arrangement and a much more intricate rhythm and a huge melodic guitar line and some very intricate parts there. And the song never lets up. It uh, it ebbs and flows. So to me, this is the mid-album highlight by far. Uh, and I just looked at how this album plays out. And my other huge favorites are either towards the beginning or the end of the album. So to me, this is a mid-album beacon. Yeah, I, I agree with it. To me, it's a, it's a whole album beacon to me. It's... um. It, it's it's so high up there. But the interesting thing about this song is that, and I think you you touched on it there, in some ways it doesn't fit on this album, I think, musically. It, I mean, it, it, in some ways it, it does not hold to the kind of formula that we get with a lot of, a lot of these other songs where they really have an American type uh, tinge to them, an American rock type of feel to them. And I, I know Jason touched on that on the roundtable. Um, he doesn't, he, he likes the album, but he doesn't rate it quite as highly as maybe some others. And that was one of the reasons for him. Um, I, I think this song in particular has that more early big country European flavor to it. I think this could have fit very comfortably on Steel Town. I mean, this is, this song yeah. to me sounds like it was taken right out of, um, Steel, the Steel Town sessions. It's got that. Stuart Stewart's voice sounds like it did in that in that period. It's got the really interesting arrangement, as you mentioned. It's it's played with a little more precision than some of these other songs. Um, not that I'm criticizing the other ones, because I as a, as I mentioned in, in the other episode, I love the kind of pummeling aspect of this album. But this song is a little more. Rest- I don't want to say restrained because it's still very very heavy, but it's a little bit more polished. Uh, maybe than some of the others and thought out, I would say, yeah, maybe that's a better way to put it, but it, it's got, um, and in, in that intro, it is kind of an odd time signature type of thing happening. And, uh, it's just, it's so cool. I mean, it, it just hits you immediately. Um, and yeah, there are so many things, so many layers to this song musically that are just classic big country. And, and another reason that I think it, uh, would have fit so so comfortably on Steel Town, uh, one of the most layered guitar albums of all time, if not the most. And you've got a lot of that here. You've got uh, these great lead lines that are played throughout. You've got little things like we talked about, that little odd instrument making the creaking sounds. You've got uh, mm-hmm. just tons of other guitar parts that happen throughout this song. Um, you, you did a great job uh, going through the lyrics. I, I found it interesting when you talked about General MacArthur being like your your clue that you would need to get you into that because when you asked me the question about Japan in the beginning, I, I kind of always took this song as that, even before the General MacArthur line, because it was something that I'd 
heard a lot about being an American. I I heard a lot of that growing up, and and when I was an adolescent, I think that was even more prevalent prevalent over here, where there was constant talk about us losing ground to the Japanese, and we had to had to increase the quality of our products, and the Japanese coming to take over all these companies and our way of life and that kind of thing. not our way of life but at least economically so so when i heard this and heard the line the selling of america and and heard these other things i kind of got that feeling already that it was japan and and the japanese uh issue that that we were dealing with economically but yeah so that's it that's that's kind of interesting though because i wonder how someone who's not ensconced in american uh culture would take it and you kind of answer that question it's like um you had to do a little sleuthing to figure out what was going on. And hmm. and the interesting thing, too, is like, I wonder how many people outside of America would would care about a song called The Selling of America and about the economic uh, issues with America. It's kind of in, an interesting thing, but it's also kind of what I love about big country. I mean, they they Stewart, especially, he's not afraid to write these types of lyrics and tackle these types of subjects that may not necessarily have this huge common appeal, worldwide appeal. but just something that interested him. And um, I did read that he had a house in America even before he moved here in 1994. So I don't know how much time he spent there, but um, he, he must have, he clearly was very heavily involved in American culture around this time. I mean, it's, it centers so much from the album and the album's lyrics and um, even musically. So I, I wish I could have talked to him more about this song uh, in hindsight and just, ask him more about why he wrote it, what he thought about it. But yeah, as, as we mentioned on the roundtable too, I do remember very distinctly that when this album came out, a lot of Americans were were wondering on on the email list, were wondering why he was writing so explicitly about America as, as someone who wasn't a citizen of America. And some some found that fact interesting and some seemed to almost take some sort of odd offense to it. Yeah, I don't I don't know. But um yeah, it's it's a beautifully crafted song, uh, lyrically and musically. And uh, I I thought that I had heard something from Tony before that made me think of this song, but I'd have to go back. Uh, maybe I'm thinking of uh, Chester's Farm, which I obviously know. We'll talk about that. But I thought I heard some pieces of this before, but maybe not. But anyway, yeah, a shame this one wasn't played live. It would have been great to hear this live, and especially that bagpipe guitar part, which I'm sure I would have cried in in if i had been in the audience as well Mm. but um (laughs) no i'm just kidding but yeah this is a this is a huge highlight for me and um in fact this is my number two song on the album where does it rank for you wow number two huh i knew it was up there Uh, i'm not too far behind it is number five for me though okay i guess in pure spaces it's a little bit behind but uh to me that's pretty much up there (laughs) <laughs> that's respect. That's respectable. On this album, it's pretty damn respectable because it's so hard to get uh, get to get up there. Yeah. So how really so how do you think the uh, the people's jury ranks this song? The people's court, I think they probably rank it low because I I did not see many high rankings of this song. I found I found I think one that ranked it number one, hmm. but um, I, I I'm going to take a guess and say number nine. Yeah, it's not quite that bad. It's number eight. Okay, that was close. So uh, an average rating of 7.59. So most people on average have it between 7 and 8 in their lists with a tendency towards 8. And actually, out of the 49 people, two people ranked it first. And four people ranked it number 12. 
Wow. So again, this song got votes all over the place, like a lot of songs on this album. There really is no definite number one, or in some cases 12, I guess, on, on this album. But uh, more lower than uh, than higher, obviously. Yeah. I really do. Th- I really do think it's an under, really underrated big country song. Uh, one of one of to me, one of the most underrated big country songs. I can't, I can't understand how people can't go nuts about this song. The only thing I could could go point back to is that the lyrics just aren't as inclusive as a lot of these other songs because they're they're so specifically about America. But uh, man, musically and everything else, this this song just destroys for me. So yeah, and I think it's also something to do with the placement on the album. Yeah, that because could be. uh, it's after "Long Way Home," which for some reason is very popular with most people, and we didn't like that the whole lot. <laughs> and then you have "Kansas" that follows it, which is a well-known song on on several albums and played on many tours. So it has two songs that, for some reason, people like quite a bit. And in between them, you have "The Selling of America." So maybe it just uh, yeah. has an unfortunate placing on the album. I think yeah. could be, could be. Who knows? Who knows? Damn you guys, you suck. <laughs> okay, hi, uh, it's fine and Tom. Have at you. Um, Andrew here from uh, Raymar in the Scottish Highlands. I wanted to talk briefly. Uh, three minutes isn't enough, is it? So um, I loaded up the uh, Buffalo Skinners onto my iPhone this morning, stuck my headphones in and went for a walk in the snow. And I'd completely forgotten how powerful the album is. It's just come straight out of the traps. You know, there's no mucking about. And um, to reiterate what Tom was saying about it sounds as if the band have been, you know, tied up for years and suddenly let loose and, and out out this comes. Now, Alone is first, but, um, and it's fine. I like, I like Alone a lot. Um, but Seven Waves to me is just the most powerful song. And, sound even the sound of it this angry uh but still soaring and i guess a favorite mix of mine in songs is to have this kind of harsh reality but this hopefulness of it and the sound of this song is just uh incredible um one of the parts um where uh, the drums move on to the ride cymbal and the and the tom toms, and uh, what's the part? And the sound that comes from you sleeping in the darkness is a doorway, and the sun that beats on the window in the morning is a doorway, and the sun that calls through the window every morning is a doorway. And you've got this really lovely sort of breakdown with the ride cymbal and the tom toms. And then it comes in with the guitar solo again and the ha, the uh, karate shouts or whatever they're called. Fantastic. I mean, just astonishingly powerful song. I'd forgotten. I'd kind of put the Buffalo Skinners back in the CD rack, you know, back in its fireproof box. And uh, it made me laugh because I think it should have a fireproof box to stop it setting fire to other CDs. It's such a, uh, a incandescent um thing um so that's my thing it just it makes the hairs on the back of my arms stand up i could feel that i i was almost in tears this morning listening to this song i just thought oh i'd forgotten i'd forgotten how good this album was and i'd forgotten how desperately i wanted big country to sound more like big country which this this is exactly what that did at the time i'd lost 
track. But there you go. All right, and that leads us into the first remake of the album. We're not in Kansas. I, re- I remember when I when I first heard the the track listing for this um, for this album, and I saw we're not in Kansas and ships that were being re recorded. I, I was excited. I got to admit, I, I I love both of those songs, and I re- I remember having heard that there was an electric version of ships that had been recorded, and back then I had not heard that yet, and I always thought back then that I would love to have heard that, and when when I heard We're Not in Kansas for the first time on No Place Like Home, I, I liked it a lot. Um, I thought it was a really good big country song, but there were elements to it that I thought were too tame. Even even then, even before I had this version to compare it to, I thought it was almost a little too sanitized at times for me. Um, a little too clean, a little too uh, structured maybe. Um, and that, that goes throughout uh every portion of the music even the drumming and and stuff too i thought was a little laid back more laid back than it should have been and i remember even thinking at the time i'm not just saying this that i wish the song had been a little heavier and had rocked out a little bit more um that being said there are there are things i love about that version of no place or that version of we're not in kansas too from no place like home it's got a very distinctive big country feel and there is some great clean guitar interplay and and it's a great song still but um, when I heard that they were redoing them, I know some people might have thought, you know, why are they doing that? I don't want to hear rehashed songs. And I was excited because I still was was very disappointed back then with what they had done with No Place Like Home. I, I was disappointed with the overall take and the overall sound and feel of that album. So um, when I heard that they were going to do this, I thought, great, I, I want to hear what these songs should sound like. Um, from their vantage point. And I remember when we talked to Bruce, I, I brought up to him the fact that Stewart had said that uh, the record company didn't even like these songs and, and, and didn't want them on the album, No Place Like Home, when he presented um, them to the record company. And Bruce didn't remember that, and he, he even kind of questioned it. I did find the, um, the quote from Stewart. Nice. Th- this is from Country Club, issue 29. And uh, someone asks him about the, the troubles working with Phonogram. And they said, that was obviously part of the reason why you decided to re-record ships and Kansas. And Stewart says, yeah, I mean, I'll let you know how bad things had got. When I took the original demo versions of ships and Kansas into the record company, they didn't even want them on the No Place Like Home album. They couldn't even hear them as songs. But ships has been a huge success throughout Europe at the moment. Even as we speak, it's gone really big all over the radio. I just couldn't believe that kind of attitude. It was like there was some bizarre sort of conspiracy plot to undermine everything that we were about. I mean, you, you don't like to be paranoid about things like that, but sometimes you wonder. Um, so, yeah, so he he's pretty clear there. At least that's what he that's what he says is that he, they didn't even like these songs. Mm-hmm. Um, so clearly he loved these songs. And we're, we're talking specifically about Kansas, but it's hard to talk about one without at least thinking about the other, which luckily it comes right after this. So we'll get to that in a minute. But so let's talk about Kansas. Clearly, this is a song that that meant a lot to Stewart, so much so that that he wanted to redo it, and the whole band wanted to redo it. And 
I, I kind of touched on this a little bit in the round table, but you, you really get that feeling on this entire album of a band being let loose. And I don't think there's anywhere else on this album that you, that you get more of that feeling than on this version of We're Not in Kansas. And I don't think it's a, a, a coincidence really that Kansas ships and their cover of Rockin' in the Free World were among the very first songs recorded for these sessions. In fact, those three were, were, uh, recorded together. Um, and I think that really makes sense because you can, you can really hear just the pinup aggression that must have been just simmering within the band at this time. Um, I mean, they just let loose, like, uh, just like bats, bats out of hell on this song. Every, all of them, even Simon, who of course didn't have this pinup aggression, but, um, he's, he somehow must have tapped into it as, as well because he was playing like a, like an animal on this song. Um, so uh, it's hard to kind of go back through the lyrics of this song. And I kind of was talking to you before we started this and I'm not going to go through all the lyrics like we, we have done in the past because we, we did this before for this song on no place like home and, and none of the the lyrics have changed. Um, it is an interesting song to follow, uh, the selling of America because it really does sort of take a lot of the ideas that are in that, that song. And sort of, um, they, they sort of find a spot in this one as well. Um, in fact, he's very clear. He says they tore up all the yellow bricks and they sold them to, to Japan. So there's still some of that, um, selling of America lingering on and in, into we're not in Kansas. Um, but it, it's a great song about lyrically about alienation, about the, the state of the world. And it's, um, it's it's a great song about being disillusioned, I think, and that's and we we've talked about all these lyrics before, and I'm not going to go through each line again, but it, it's a great song about disillusionment, and it's an angry song, um, and this I think is an, another good example of that kind of anecdotal lyric writing that I may not have liked so much in Long Way Home, but uh, I think I think it works really well here, sort of like it did in Selling of America. You get all these different scenarios that he's bringing up, but for some reason, it works really well here. Um, again, we get a we get a very distinctive American type of feel to it, just from the title. We're not in Kansas, and the reference, of course, to the Wizard of Oz and that kind of thing. Um, but I, I think I think this is really kind of the heart of this album, and, and it's not my favorite song on this album. And I wouldn't make a song that they had redone my favorite song on a new album. But there's something about the performance of this that I think just if I had to if somebody had not heard this album before and wasn't that familiar with Big Country and they wanted something to give them an idea of what this album was like. This is probably the song that I would play for them because it's it's just full of that anger. It's full of that bluster. It's it's full of that completely um, loose throw caution to the wind type of approach that they took here from a production standpoint, from a performance standpoint. It's not held back by any producer's uh, narrow vision of what they should sound like. It's not held back by the idiocy of someone like Dave Bates, who's going to go through every single line or portion of a song and wonder how that's going to be played on the radio. I mean, good Lord, the song is, is like, uh, you know, well over six minutes long, as we've talked about before. They, they had no concern whatsoever in, um, in keeping this song to a single, type of length 
which is interesting because, as you know, they they talked a lot about releasing this as a single at times, mm-hmm. um, but it never happened. But uh, and I'm fine with that because I think this is just a great album track, and it, it's one of those songs that even though it is so incredibly long, I have to say that I never get tired of listening to it when I'm listening to it. I mean. When I put it on, I never feel like it's dragging. I never feel like it's going on too long. Um, just a couple things about this one that I that I think uh, maybe set it apart more from the No Place Like Home version from a musical perspective. Um, number one, we get this great karate bark from Stewart at the beginning, and it's it's kind of unintelligible what he's what he's even saying. It's just this pure <laughs> yeah, it is. It's just like this pure <laughs> burst of emotion. It's great. It, it it gets the the spine tingling immediately. Um, the arrangement is really the same, basically, as the as the No Place Like Home version. But there are little flourishes that that are in here that aren't necessarily in the No Place Like Home version. But from a musical perspective, I think one of the main things that gives this song a lot more bite than the No Place Like Home version is that the guitars are more distorted. Um, they're not totally overdriven to the point of being like you know, heavy metal guitars, because you do still need some sort of cleanness for that main guitar line, which always struck me as kind of like a cowboy Western type of line, you know, you need a little cleanness for that, but they add enough distortion and overdrive to that where it's got a, it's got an edge to it. It's got a sharpness to it that it was lacking for me in the original. The, the little guitar fade ups that they have in the verses when he says um some lines like uh wander wander around thinking what kind of place is this where they say hey what did you do in the war and then there'll be like a a little guitar part that just kind of just kind of fades up and then out where they say I love that. It's it's they kind of did it in the original version as well, but it's it's more pronounced here. And again, it's got a little bit more heft to it. Um, there's uh, th- there's this really cool, um, almost Baba O'Reilly like keyboard breakdown in the in the middle. Um, and if you listen in headphones, especially, you can really hear it. It's not overpowering the keyboards, but it's there. And I, I when I was listening to it recently, I was struck by something Bruce said. Um, recently where he said that Tony had constructed a Baba O'Reilly type of intro for Chester's farm that they ended up not using. And and then I heard this and I thought, wow, that sounds so much like a, a Baba O'Reilly type of keyboard part in Kansas. So I, I'm assuming, I could be wrong, but I'm assuming that maybe Tony did that as well. I know Colin Berwick played um, keyboards and he plays some Hammond organ. I think there's some buried in, in this song as well. But that whole breakdown section in the middle that is just like classic who. <laughs> I mean that that is like the who template. Where the twisters never come. And they tore up all the yellow bricks. And they sold them to Japan. And still the advertising. 
Simon Phillips must have been incredibly comfortable with that, with this song, especially, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, th- this song really has, uh, I guess that big, big rock feel to it. It's, it's not very Celtic-y. Um, as some other of the heavier songs on this album still have some Celtic tinges to them. This one really does not, but, uh, it doesn't bother me. It's just, it's just so, big and gigantic and the emotion in and the power is undeniable um i can totally understand pe- some people who i've read who who say they prefer the no place like home version for some reasons um that version almost sounds like a more thought out big country arrangement and i know that when you think about big country you don't always think about being so emotional that you're about to fall apart almost <laughs> in some of these songs you get that feeling almost in this one like it's so full of emotion that it's, it could explode at any minute. You don't really get that feeling from most big country songs. It's, it's They're normally more like controlled uh, mm-hmm. chaos. This is like chaos that's almost ready to combust. Um, but I personally love it. I, I think this is the superior version for me um, because it's, it's more emotionally performed and it's more emotionally sung. And um, the drums, uh, we talked about this on, on the round table, but the drums in this are just, spectacular uh, just incredible drumming from simon especially the the end um i listened to uh the the live version of this today actually and um from without the aid of a safety net the long version of that album and uh mark mark tries to, to pretty much duplicate what simon is doing there and he does a great job with it and i i wonder I wonder if Mark was asked to play more laid back on No Place Like Home, if that's what he decided to do. I don't know. But uh, I think the the all guns blazing approach on the drums works really well. And Simon almost finished here, but Simon also does a, a, a lot of things throughout the song that I always personally like. And I think to me always gives any song that much more power. And that is he uses a lot of open hi-hat. He uses a lot of of the ride symbol on the chorus yeah. instead of the closed hi-hat which you got in the no place like home version i always like that i know some people who produce music don't like that because they feel like the open hi-hat is 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 too much and it's conflicting with other instruments i always thought it gives the song more power and and just just more force and simon does that a lot on this song like on this song like big open hi-hats big ride cymbals and that to me works really well so it's the right thing for the right song. I think that would be yeah. totally wrong for the No Place Like Home version, but it's perfect here. Yeah, I think so too. It, it, it's, it fits the approach perfectly. So, you know, I know I didn't get into a huge um, deep discussion about the lyrics here, but I, I don't think there's a huge point. If you really want to hear what we talked about, go back to the No Place Like Home podcast and, and we pretty much dissected it. I'm hoping we did. <laughs> I can't remember Yeah, exactly. li- listen to our first ever deep dive, our first ever song in our first ever deep dive, done nearly four years ago. Good luck. Oh, wow. Wow, that's right. That was our first ever, wasn't <laughs> so, it? So so it wasn't as deep as we got, but uh, we did touch on it, yes. Okay, yeah, I figured. And, and you know, the lyrics are really pretty... I, I'm remembering now as we speak, I remember thinking that the whole... I remember saying that the whole well dog lyric I thought was really kind of sweet, even though it was harsh line and I, I still feel that way i love always love that line when he's talking to a dog and i mean i know that we're it's a reference back to toto and the wizard of oz but i don't tend to think of it that way i just like that that line well dog i know we're not in kansas anymore and i i just think that's a really cool line um yeah i mean the lyrics are very straightforward they don't really bear the need to to go through and interpret them um like some of these other songs do but uh 
that line and, and the line, that's what you're howling for always got me. And I think mm-hmm. it's a great chorus. Um, I could see someone saying maybe it's too long, but when, when something is performed like this, so bombastically and emotionally, um, I'm, I'm fine with it. And, uh, I think it's, it's just a, an incredible piece. And I think they, they, they really, for me, they really improved on it. Although it's, it's not necessarily apples to apples here. There, there is, there are times when I would go back and listen to the No Place Like Home version and maybe be in the, more in the mood to hear that. Lots of great things to get out of that one too. But, uh, if I had to pick one or the other, uh, this would be the one I would pick. I guess at the end of the day, we're lucky to have two great versions of this song because uh, it is one of their great songs in their catalog for yeah. sure. And uh, we do have a quote from Stuart from the now infamous Fox Record press release again, which uh, means we're going to get something short and snappy and hopefully to the point. And this one is more to the point. He says, uh, this song is about our inability to keep up with the world's rapid changes. And that uh, that's an interesting uh, comment in context of either version of the song. And I think it means different things there. And But I'll get back to that in a little bit. Boy, and how, how apt is that still today, even more than ever? Oh, it is. Timeless. Timeless stuff. And those who are big fans of the re-record should send their thanks to Chris Briggs. Uh, apparently, he was the one who suggested that the band should turn up the guitars and do it again, uh, which is confirmed by Bruce in the liner notes to the remaster that came in 2005 of the Buffalo Skinners. Nice. And in those liner notes, you can read the following. Originally recorded for the No Place Like Home album, we heavied it up at the request of Chris Briggs. The No Place Like Home version was more acoustic sounding, while this version had a definite The Who element to it. Which again ties into the Baba O'Reilly thing, right? Yeah, definitely. Pure accident, I'm sure. Uh, But (laughs) Tony was also asked about uh, why they put the re-recordings of Ship in Kansas, and we kind of beat that to a dead horse before, but he said, we always had loads of material, but tended to edit ourselves quite severely. The two tracks that were re-recorded were done because we felt that the original recordings did not do the songs justice. They were recorded during a particularly stressful time, which is also interesting. And uh, like you said, we, we discussed these songs before. It was the first ever deep dive we did. It was the first ever song in our first deep dive, soon to be four years ago, and that's pretty incredible. Uh, really it's, is. Um, wow. I can't remember what we said, to be honest. I, I, I actually made a conscious effort not to listen to that. Because I could have listened and played back, but I didn't want to do that. I wanted to more discuss this song in the context of this album. And uh, it is a totally different context. Yeah, it is. It really is. And that that can in some ways change how you feel about it. Because to me, I mean, the lyrics to this song are very much part of the No Place Like Home era. And what I read into this song is a lot about the circumstances the band found themselves when they recorded that album and specifically. So I see a lot of that album's themes really stemming from this one song. Anything from the title of that album, the Wizard of Oz reference, which again, touch on the album cover, and just just the overall theme. It just comes from there. And I almost see this song as a diary from those days, which also the, the liner notes from Stuart underline, where he likened the band to Dorothy, who came back to Kansas and found that everything had changed. So all these Wizard of Oz references and all that stuff, it's very endearing. But it does tie in back to that confused time for me. Mm. So getting these lyrics in the context away from that, and in Buffalo Skinners, where the band seemed to be more on a go again, kind of also changed. You know, within the topic of everything changing, 
when you change the context of a song, you need to try and read the song in a different way. And that's an interesting exercise to do. It, it can be very, very interesting. And sometimes you come out with something else. Uh, so this is, uh, I pretty much agree with everything you said, that this is a fantastic song. I, I really like it. And uh, if you remember four years back and our deep dive, I ranked this song as number one. So it, it's very clear that I have a love for this song. But that's the No Place Like Home version. This is not my number one on the Buffalo Skinners. And to me, this song is so firmly steeped in the No Place Like Home time. And that sound and the way it's presented there that for a long time, I, I actually struggled to fully accept this track as belonging to the Buffalo Skinners era. Mm. I, I think I think it's a great cover. And I do see this as a cover version of the original. I don't see it as a new version of the song that replaces the original to me. I know you said a lot of people prefer the No Place Like Home version, and I was thinking, I don't know if a lot of people do. <laughs> My impression is definitely that the Buffalo Skinners gave people something they felt was lacking. Um, so yeah. I, I assume I'm in the vast minority, and that's fine. But I think the song actually lost something in the translation. And I've been listening to the Skinners album so much lately, just, just earlier today when Kansas came on, and I started thinking... Why am I resisting this song so much? They do a good job making the song fit within the album, and it's really a terrific upgrade. So I actually reached for the No Place Like Home version and put it on to see what, what does this have that the other one doesn't have. And within seconds, the doubt was gone, and it kind of drove the point home. The version from No Place Like Home just does it for me. And that may seem a little strange because those who know me knows I'm a guy who listens to a lot of hard rock and metal. And why wouldn't I not appreciate a kick-ass version of a big country song? And I guess that's, that's really two reasons. Where the primary thing to me is keeping in mind what drew me to this band to begin with. It was not big country, the rock band. The song that drew me in originally was Chance. Uh, the song that took me to the next level was The Storm. One of my all-time favorite songs is All Fall Together from that same time, not to be confused with All Go Together from Buffalo Skinners. But all of these songs have a certain haunting atmosphere, an uneasy mood, some inner dramatics that is portrayed in the music. And all songs certainly don't have to be that way, and I clearly love Big Country, the rock band too. But those type of songs have always been where I think Big Country, the band, is best. And I think the original version from No Place Like Home has those layers. It has the atmosphere. It has a very uneasy feel. You, you feel something is, uh, is a bit wrong. Something is going on here. And I feel, to be blunt, that this is all sacrificed on the altar of hard guitar rock on the Buffalo Skinners. And I kind of resent that a little bit. Well, what kind of place is this? On the wrong side of the rainbow where the twisters never come And they tore up all the yellow bricks And they sold them to Japan And still the advertisers tell you Hey, there's no place like home And I will admit, the masses of people who refer to the Skinner's version as an upgrade 
it's kind of starting to grate to me a bit because the no place like home version seems to be so easily discarded by so many. And if anything, that just makes me a little bit more determined in my desire to stand by the song and not abandon <laughs> it. But at the end of the day, obviously, the reason I stand by that song is it manages to bring on the goosebumps. It really does mean something. So it's not a preference based on a principle, even though it, it can seem that way when I speak. But uh, there's also a second reason. Uh, and that's more I struggle with the song in the context of this album, I guess. That, uh, mm. that this song and to some degree ships, they just do belong to a different time and a different album. So they decided to give two songs from their past a new chance. And that is fine. It's actually great. But to me, there's no difference to doing that with these songs than picking two songs from, say, Peace in Our Time. And they could just as well have been unhappy with uh, the production of those two songs from Peace in Our Time. Decided to give them a second chance on Skinner's and in all likelihood would be vast improvements, but that's really beside the point. It would, it, it's just that it doesn't belong to the time of Skinner's. So it sounds like covers to me. It well, sounds... Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. If you can, do you think you could put yourself in a mindset where you had never, where, where Kansas had never been on, on uh, No Place Like Home? And if so, and if, if hearing it on Skinner's was the very first time you'd heard the song, if that's even possible for you to put yourself in that frame of, of reference, do you have any idea of what you might think of it then? If, if you could, if you could judge it totally on its own merits as the Skinner's version and have no history of her hearing a previous version? I would in all likelihood have loved it. Yeah. And uh, that's a point I'm, I'm quick to make. I actually do love that song. But uh, there are some things that makes it a little bit more problematic. It feels like those two songs, Kansas and Ships, are bonus tracks, which are placed in the middle of the album instead of at the end. That's how I feel about it. Mm. They just do belong to a different time and a different album, to put it in, in layman's terms. Now, bonus tracks is not a bad thing. And in big country's history, a, a lot of the bonus tracks are, are really great, They're vastly superior to a lot of album tracks. So it's not a bad thing to be compared with. But um, this is just why, for me, it's uh, I don't embrace this as readily as a lot of the songs on the album, so it doesn't rate that high for me. But it is a good song, and I, I definitely enjoy it. So it, I, I do prefer the No Place Like Home version, but... I'm happy to have two, you know. I don't want to come across as a, a hater of the Skinner's one, but uh, someone's got to stand up for that one. and uh, that So that's my job. But uh, the music of the song, I have very little to say about it because, uh, like, like you said yourself, it is a very straight rock arrangement of the original version. They really didn't change much, and that I'm glad for. Uh, you actually can hear that it is an upgrade. It's not a rearrangement. So clearly right. it's more about the sound and that type of putting the attitude in it and putting some force behind it than being unhappy with the uh, the structure of the song. So that makes it very interesting. And you, you mentioned some things that necessarily aren't uh, evident as being part of that transition, like little sound effecty things on the original version, and they kind of keep it on the electric version. Those are the kind of flourishes that make me smile and uh, appreciate the electric treatment all that much more. So uh, lyrically, I'm not going to talk too much about that either, but it's a very interesting experiment, like I mentioned, to step outside the context of No Place Like Home, which that makes the song more about the band situation in my head. Whereas on Skinner's, you have lots of songs about big politics, corruption, society having lost its way and all that stuff. And it kind of fits that to a T. It's, it's perfect. It's like it was written for this album. 
So that uh, that's definitely also in its favor. And you, you mentioned my favorite line, like they tore up all the yellow bricks and sold them to Japan, following right after selling of America. How uh, how awesome isn't that? It really plays into it big time. Right. So uh, I, I do think it can be a very valuable exercise to sometimes place a song in that different context and see what falls out of it. And um, doing that, with the Skinner's frame of mind actually made me appreciate the lyrics a bit more than I, I did before. And that also elevated the song a little bit, even on the Skinner's list for me. So it it isn't last. It's not even second last. This is my number 10. Number 10. Wow. Number 10. On an album with so many good songs on it, it doesn't take too much to make a song slide down the list a bit. But uh, there you go. Well, we're, we're a little, we're probably our furthest apart on this one. For me, it's number five. And and it's it's number five because I just I'm so enraptured by this version. <laughs> it's even though it's a repeated <laughs> song, it just uh, it does it for me. And I did I did find another quote here um, from Stewart about why they re-recorded these, and it's kind of old old ground. But leading into your discussion of ships, um, this kind of applies to Kansas and ships. And this comes comes from Country Club Magazine issue twenty six, and uh, Jan Bremner, who did that magazine, asks Stewart. She says, uh, ships in Kansas have been repeated on this album. I believe that this is because you felt that the last album did not do these tracks justice, hence the repeat. And Stewart says, yeah, well, we, we re-recorded ships in Kansas just because we felt that we hadn't done them justice on the album, certainly not compared with the live versions. And I think that, well, it's just that we really like the songs and really like playing them live and one or two versions that were much more like the live versions uh, that we had done on the previous tour. And she says, uh, the version, the versions on this album, I think are really great, I must say. And Stewart says, yeah, the way that they sound, they fit much better with this record than they did with the last one, especially sounding the way that they do. They sound much more like the band playing them. That's what I wanted for the whole record. Mm. So interesting thoughts from him at the time. And, yeah. uh, I guess that takes us into the next one, uh, the next cover <laughs> on this album. Do you want to hear the votes from the people's jury? Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, skipping ahead. Yeah, they are. Um, they are definitely liking the song. I was going to say they're just going to be high. Yeah, people are hating me now. No, it's <laughs> this is uh, this is uh, number four overall. Oh. So this is one of the the high up there. It had ten number ones. Wow. Which wow. Uh, which draws it with the low and as the second most uh, number of number one ratings. So a lot of people really rate this highly. It also got two number twelves. Really? So there are, there are people out there who who dislike it more than me. <laughs> Believe it. <or> not. <laughs> and but not that that's a stretch. I don't dislike it, and I don't want to be remembered as the guy who don't like this version. But I, I I know you prefer the No Place Like Home version. Yeah, that's acceptable. It's it's definitely more falling into that. All right, but that does take us into ships. Hi, Tom and Swine. It's Paul Barker speaking here. How are you doing? Happy New Year to you both. Uh, thanks for the very entertaining Yuletide podcast. I really enjoyed. I feel really privileged that you actually answered two of my questions I'd sent uh, on the Facebook page. Um, yeah, Tom, thanks for posting a thing about Love, Hope, Strength and your album proceeds. Going to that, I should certainly be buying your album. 
on its musical ability alone, but obviously, <laughs> obviously it's a bonus about the proceeds. Swine, thanks so much for the very interesting, um, kind of eulogy about aha, which I found really fascinating. I am quite a fan, but I do need to catch up on quite a bit of their music. And in many ways, I feel the same about Runrig. Um, I could eulogize a lot about them. It's interesting the albums you mentioned that you think are their greatest. I would rank in more modern times the Big Wheel, which is the first album I saw them perform live. And the stamping ground as, as real sort of classics as well. And there's a lot of anticipation around their last ever recorded album, The Story, which is coming out at the end of January. Um, anyway, uh, and looking forward very much to your, um, exposition of Buffalo Skinners. It's a very intriguing album containing my favorite big country song of all, Ships, which I'm really glad that they played on that lot of their British dates last year. Um, and, you know, it's just perfect for Stuart's voice, although Simon obviously has done a brilliant job as well. But particularly looking forward when you get to that point, um, I should be listening as attentively as always to all the podcasts anyway. Um, but thanks for all, for all you're doing and all your time. Wishing you guys every success. Okay, bye for now, guys. Bye. Look at him now. Another used man Wearing the with all the courage that he can He stood in the stone Carved out in stone He said I wore my honesty with pride and everything Alright you crazy bastard, now what do you think of ships? This crap <laughs> Moving along Yeah All go together <laughs> <laughs> The quote from uh, Stuart on ships that I have comes from uh, the town and country stage announcements, and he says, this is a song about needing help. So for once, he actually hit it off the bat, I think, in one of his uh, stage introductions. We, we mentioned that sometimes they were not necessarily um, ha having a whole lot to do with what the song is actually about. But uh, yeah, after everything I said about Kansas, I'm sure everybody is expecting me to really tear apart this one. Uh, but there is a significant difference between the two, and that is that this has a very different starting point from Kansas in that I did not care for the No Place Like Home version of this song. And that means two things, which impacts how I feel about this song, and I guess that's one good thing and one bad thing. The good thing being that my lack of enthusiasm for the No Place Like Home version means I would be much more open to a rearrangement of this song than I was with Kansas, and any rearrangement, especially involving a full band, would almost certainly be a vast improvement on any previous version. But on the other hand, this was a song that had already left me cold in a lot of ways. Uh, I'm not a piano ballad man, and I was so indifferent to the No Place Like Home version of this song that there was, I guess, a certain resistance to getting this song served up one more time, no matter in what format. So both of these factors still influence a bit how I feel about this version of the song on the Buffalo Skinners. Before I get too much into that, we have some very interesting uh, chronicles of the song origins. It's actually very well documented on this song. Primarily, this is the third song on this album, where we have an early Bruce Watson demo with the music on it. So this is uh, an early instrumental demo of the song that became Ships eventually, and that can be found on the collection of demos he released in December 2000 called Demology. 
Lots of Bruce demos on that one. It contains 11 pieces of music, all unnamed. And number three on that disc is the instrumental demo to Ships. We also have a band demo of the song from the No Place Like Home sessions with Pat Ahern on drums. And it's interesting that the version of the song on, on Skinner sounds a whole lot more like that original demo than they ended up doing for No Place Like Home. They tried a couple of different things back there, and uh, we we were lucky to to get a comment from Bruce on our Facebook group when we discussed this recently. And I'm sure both of us took a note of that. But as it happens, I'm talking about this song first, so I get to read it. <laughs> and uh, he read uh, he wrote the following regarding ships. We definitely recorded full band version with Pat Moran for No Place Like Home album. Richie added piano and strings, and we all decided to strip instruments off and go with just vocals, piano, and synthesized string quartet. The original band version is kind of similar to how we do it now. On the Buffalo Skinners, we start with the vocals, but originally it started with guitar. I thought the original was released on rarities, but I could be wrong. I might have the original in Attic, but we'll have to look. Mark played drums on this version also. That was a bombshell. It was a bombshell. That was a brand new thing. And actually, Jason Allen, our, our roundtable guest, actually alluded to there being a version that none of us knew about. He did. And I even asked him, I, I said, "Is now is that the, the version on the rarities? Because that's clearly Pat Ahern on drums. Yeah. Or is that Mark is that Mark on drums? And Jason said he wasn't sure, but maybe Bruce could add. And Bruce certainly did. He came in there and, 
and made it clear that it was produced by Pat Moran and it had Mark on drums. So man, that's a that's a that's one I want to hear. Yeah, me too. So so that means we we actually have several versions of the song. We have the the early Bruce Watson demo. We have the demo, the original demo on Rarities Five with Pat Ahern. Then we have the version Bruce talks about, which is a finished version with Mark. Then we have the No Place Like Home version, and we have the Buffalo Skinner's version. That's five different versions of <laughs> ships. So this is well chronicled, and I think that might tie, I think, into the fire uh, with uh, the number of demos and the progression of a song. So ships of all songs. If you like ships, you're you're kind of in luck because you can uh, you can almost get half an album's worth just with with ships. And that's not even counting the, the live versions that's out there. Wow. So, so uh, yeah, we, that's quite a bit about the origins of the song. So let's now focus just on, on Buffalo Skinners. Uh, I think this rearrangement is a definite improvement. I'm definitely in the Skinners camp for ships. Long pause. I'm wondering if I should stop here while I'm ahead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bruce mentions that the song originally started with guitar which is also how they played it live. And after the piano ballad version on No Place Like Home, I'm, I'm a little disappointed that once again, they chose a piano opening for the song on uh, on Skinner's. The entire yeah. first verse and first chorus is piano ballad all over again. And it, it's just not my thing um, for a re-record. I, I, I had hoped they strayed... I, I don't know if they're trying to sort of lure people into thinking it's the same thing and then kick into it. That, that would be kind of like a punchline, but that only works once. And then you still have to live with the piano ballad thing every time after that. But that's just me. I, I don't like that kind of thing. Uh, but even so, I can definitely sense more energy on the on the Skinner's version, for sure. And even just the piano part is an improvement, but I, I just wish they hadn't. Uh, I, I wish they had gone for the guitar thing and maybe something closer to how they actually played live. So basically, if you're going to go for a re-recording, then go for it. Change it up. And I feel, too, that that the I, I agree with you there. And I, I feel like that piano opening on Buffalo Skinners, it almost seems like they're rushing through it. Like they're just saying, OK, this is the obligatory piano open. Let's just hurry up and get through it so we can get to the guitars kicking in. <laughs> and it, it kind of takes away a little from the emotion of that to me. But yeah, I'll, I'll talk more about that when my turn comes. Now you can talk about it. I mean, we I think we agree on that one to some degree then. But uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do what the band feels like they're doing and skip quickly to the rest of it. Because it is when the band kicks in that it becomes interesting. And this is where they take the song to a different place. The, the place I had hoped they would do and what the song desperately needed in my book, in my point of view. But even though I, I really prefer the re-record, there is something about this song that it just feels like it's not quite there for me. Uh, not my cup of tea, perhaps. but. Uh, I, I still hear that the song crafting involved here is great. It always was a great song. I, I recognize it. I hear it. It's, I, I, you can't knock it. And I said that even in the, the four-year-old discussion in No Place Like Home, even though that was a piano ballad. But unfortunately, I'm only getting versions of this song in musical genres or musical rapping, if you will, that failed to excite me. So the first one was the piano ballad. Snooze City. And this time we're getting it with slick Nashville steel guitars and uh, stuff that it's, it's, it's not good. It's, it's not what I want. 
it's it's not what I like from from the band. And also, it seems like such a strange fit on on this album. So they kick into a solo section, and the first half of the solo is a pedal steel guitar. I do not like pedal steel guitar. <laughs> it, it it lays there in the background of the third verse and and later choruses. They they just it 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 remains a factor in the song. I just wish they hadn't. So never was such a desperate and touching cry for help. So well produced and mellow with slick Nashville production, <laughs> and uh, that uh, just 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 grinds on me, I guess. But the words are beautiful, so let me run to the words because I, I can't fail them much. I might have a couple of quibbles, but really, the we, we talked about this before, and they follow a similar structure to just a shadow in Thirteen Valleys. For the first verse, you have the man. Look at him now, another used man, etc. And the second verse is the woman, where you see her now, tired and worn, etc. And the third verse is the you, the everyone, us, the people, where look at you now, just chase, chasing your life. And that is a, a formula that, that works. And if I read these lyrics as poetry, I definitely find them touching. Uh, when I get them served up as part of this song, there's something about the presentation that gets in the way and prevents the words from really touching me. So I know what the, it, this song means to a lot of people. I, I think that's great. I really don't want to, to uh, belittle it for those people. But uh, there is one issue I have, and that's something about the tone of the where were you part of the song that just feels a little awkward to me it sits a little uncomfortable when he's basically getting into the whole why did you not help me where were you why were you not there why did you let me down how can you do this to me what have you done for me lately it feels a little blamey uh, but there's hurt in these words that I think is meant to be there and uh, probably well placed so you did let me down that hurt me and I think he wants to emphasize the hurt but it gets close to focusing on blaming others for what happened, which is not very becoming. Uh, if you take a song like Just a Shadow, it would have been a totally different song if instead of exploring those people's situation, uh, if it had gone the same way as Chips, feeling let down by others, like I am the shadow of the man I can be because you let me down. So let's not go there. Clearly he took a better route for that song and as he did several others. And I'm not saying he went too far in this thing, but sometimes I just feel that little element of blame lurking, so to speak, like, where were you when my ships went down? And it just doesn't become the song. But uh, the song is far from bad. It's it's actually quite good. But it's on this album, and the closest one on this album that comes closest to really just not my thing. But I don't want to leave this song on a down. I, I hate to leave it on a down, so I want to add something that is actually very positive at the end here. And that is... Uh, I have a favorite version of this song, where the presentation never got in the way of the song, and that is an acoustic version of this song that Stuart played on a German radio show. It's a beautiful version of a touching song, and whenever I put that version of the song on, I see the greatness in the song that everybody else seemed to do. And for those moments, with just Stuart singing his own voice and his guitar and nothing else, for those moments, the song is so beautiful. It it really tugs my heartstrings. Mm. And it's just a shame that that brings it home. I, I really do like the song, but there is something about the presentation on every official album we've had that just gets in the way for me. 
that's kind of my biggest issue with this version as well. And that's why it's that's why on this one we're totally reversed. I prefer the the No Place Like Home version. I'm not a a big piano ballad kind of guy myself. Um but I do do think that the song has such an emotional uh resonance to it that it's better suited for the approach that it got on No Place Like Home. I I feel like um and I mentioned that I felt like they, they kind of rushed their way through the beginning on, on Buffalo Skinners with that piano intro. And I just feel like the way they did it, um, on No Place Like Home really made it more, um, made it easier to, to glean that emotion from it. I mean, this, this song has got like everything thrown in there. And I, and I like the, the verse on Buffalo Skinners. You know, I'll listen to it and, and get into it. Um, and mm-hmm. by the way, that, that, that pedal steel sound is actually not a pedal steel. It's something from a, it's something called a B bender guitar. It's like this little weird guitar accessory. You can actually see him playing this live on, on videos from the time, but it's, it's this guitar accessory that you put on the guitar, but it makes it, it makes the guitar sound like a pedal steel. Okay. That changes everything. Yeah. (laughs) Say that, that would, yeah, right. That, that's what he was using. Um, but yeah, it's still, it's still clearly a, a pedal steel approach and a sound to it. Um, I, I can, it's not my huge cup of tea either, but sometimes I can, I can take it and, uh, I actually like it in this version. I, I think it, I think with the, the country-ish elements that are already in a couple of these songs, um, it, it fits, it fits on this album. Um, but yeah, my, my, my main issue with the song is that I just don't feel like the, the approach is what message of the song, uh, means or, or the message of the song is trying to get across. and. Feel like the emotion of this song is more suited to the approach it got on on No Place Like Home. I I think um, Stewart's vocals are much more impassioned. The 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 pain in the song really comes through. Interesting though, I I really think that um that that version of on No Place Like Home is the better version as I, as I keep saying. But one of the interesting things too about um the Buffalo Skinners that Ships was released as a single, but then it was like it had the parenthetical aside Ships where were you in parentheses? Yeah. And it was, it was like, they couldn't figure out even, even then they couldn't figure out what to do with it. And they couldn't quite figure out just to leave it, just leave it as ships. You know, you don't need the, where were you parenthetical comment there. I mean, I know where were you is the big, I, and I can just, I can just imagine one of the record company people saying, well, you say, where were you all the time? And that's the hook of the song is where were you? Why, that should be part of the title. And you really don't need it. Um, but again, this song is so long. <laughs> this is even longer than Kansas, I oh, believe. Yeah. It's like almost seven minutes. Um, so how do you make a single out of this? I don't know. It's a great song, but I, I know they try to do a single edit. Um, I haven't heard that in years, but I, I do remember hearing it at the time and, and just feeling like, ugh. The single edit is five minutes and 55 seconds long. Is it? <laughs> really? So they did actually manage to bring it down a little. <laughs> okay. Oh, man. But one of the other musical things that I do, don't really like about the Buffalo Skinners version, and, and this is kind of like your dislike of pedal steel. I have this strong dislike for the Hammond organ. I just, I cannot stand that sound. I don't know what it is. I don't, I don't like it. Every time I hear the Hammond organ, I just think of like the worst kind of bluesy rock stuff that I just never got into. And I love Colin Barrow. He's a great guy, great keyboardist but he's got some ham and organ in this song and it just sweeps sometimes it just sweeps high up into the mix and i'm just like uh you know don't please take that away <laughs> you know i'm not a big fan of that but um 
Yeah, I mean, lyrically, uh, we, we've there's nothing really else to say about it. Um, I don't think I'm quite on board with you when it comes to like him blaming someone else. I, I, I don't see that as much uh, in the lyrics. Um, it's 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 an, like, it's, a, it's an element of it. It's not like I feel that's what it is. And I'm not saying he went too far in this thing, but sometimes I just feel that little element of blame lurking. Yeah, okay. For me, it was always just like someone who didn't help the person through something that he was going through and not necessarily that he was blaming them for the problems. But, yeah, but the where were you? Where were you when... Well, the interesting part of the of the interesting part of that chorus is that he also says, where were you when I turned it around? And I... I, that that almost seems like a positive thing, like he turned things around, but then it's followed immediately by where were you when they burned me down? So I always had some trouble with that chorus. Like, what is he exactly trying to say there? Is it supposed to be completely bleak or is there supposed to be some element of hope there? I, I don't know, because he says, where were you when I turned it around? And I just naturally assume that that means turning something around for the positive. Yeah. But maybe maybe it's not meant to be that. Maybe it's like turning something around toward the negative. But I mean, if you've already run aground and then you turn it around, I'm assuming that that's good. But then they burn me down. So I don't know. But <laughs> maybe not every lyric should be uh, so so precisely uh, dissected as we do here. <laughs> yes, they should be. And if they can't take it, tough. It's not necessarily meant for that. But anyway, to 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 close. Um, the one thing about this song too that it takes me back to Chance a little bit with, uh, and I'm not comparing it to Chance because I think that's the far superior song. Um, even though I, I do think this is, structurally is a great song, but I, Chance is a, is a lot better for me. But Chance has that big ending when you get get the big distorted guitars that kick in at the end, and you get that here too on Ships, and that always took me back to Chance. Um, and it's like you you think that this, okay, the song's got to be over now. And then all of a sudden, nope, here, we got a big distorted guitar driven coda coming up and they hit those big power chords and then they can even come back for another chorus at the end. So, uh, yeah, this, this is a, a big song. Th this probably is, um, one of the songs that I'll, that I'll be more prone, probably the only song on the album that I'll be prone to skipping. Um, and it, sometimes I, I do enjoy it. I listened to it today in preparation for this and I really did enjoy it. I enjoyed the, the tapestry of, of guitar elements that were in the song and there's some great playing in it. And there's all kinds of, this is, de this is definitely kind of a light and shade song in a way, even though it does go full bore once it kicks in, but there's a lot of clean, cool guitar parts in it. But yeah, to sum up, I mean, I just, I just feel like the approach works better on no place like home for this. I, th I think it, it lends itself more to the emotion of the song, the rawness of the song. So I give Pat Moran credit, I guess, for uh, deciding to strip everything back, but that being said, I do hope Bruce can turn up the uh, the full band version of this and and share it with us because I would love to to hear what that sounded like with Mark uh, on the drums and with that Pat Moran treatment. Maybe maybe mm. we would finally find like the perfect um, hybrid between the two versions that wasn't too over the top and yet wasn't solely the stripped back piano ballad. So who knows? We'll see. Yeah, that would be great. Okay, so. Yeah, as you might imagine, my ships or where I rank ships is is not incredibly high on this album. I rank it at number eleven. All right, so this is the song that Long Way Home rescued from the bottom. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> okay, nice. Kind of. Yeah, kind kind of. <laughs> yeah, to some degree, it's an academic per exercise. This thing, you know. So 
it is my number 12. It is last on my list. And uh, it has to be one, and it's probably not a surprise. But like I said, with the right version of the song, I, I really do do like it. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. It's a great song, extremely well written. And uh, yeah. And I'm wondering if we should actually put in the good version now. Yeah, I really want to hear that version. I, I think I know I've heard it before, but it's been a long time. So I'm sure yes, everybody stick, wants to hear it. So so stick that in here so I can hear it. What you're about to hear is a performance from Stuart German Radio 1993 Ships, the good version. Look at him now. Another used man wearing the passing off his dignity with all the courage that he came. He stood in the storm, carved out in stone. He said, I want my honesty with pride and everything I've done. Cast off the chains that I was born with It never was enough Chasing our lives Make like the saviors of the planet We're trying to get baggy You may walk the line You may see it all through I know you'll cry yourself to sleep at night Wondering what to do One thing we forgot to talk about before playing that song was actually the audience ranking of ships. So 
just to quickly mention it, it made number three. Nice. And as you remember, Kansas was number four with ten number ones and two number twelves. Ships is a bit more divided. It had only six number ones and four number twelves. So there are actually quite a few out there who feel like me. It's not the strong point of the album. <laughs> but uh, the average clearly ranks higher overall. And the number three spot on this album is clearly respectable and clearly better than both Tom and myself. So there you have it. Hey, Tom and Svein. This is Jim and Weeds dropping into the Great Divide with some memories on the Buffalo Skinners. For me, this time was grunge with walls of guitar sounds when music with dark lyrics for the disaffected and melancholic were in vogue, and everyone I knew wore a plaid shirt. So the time seemed right for Big Country to put this album out. It was the first Friday in October of 1993 that I pulled into the parking lot of the small record store I would often visit. There was a bank of windows along the side of the store, and right in front of me as I parked the car was the red and black of a small Buffalo Skinner's poster. I couldn't believe my eyes and stared through the windshield because I had heard nothing from Big Country since Peace in Our Time, which I played over and over again, along with the Big Three albums. I had never been part of the mailing list or would have had anything besides occasional issues of Rolling Stone to keep me aware of the band. The title struck me immediately, as growing up literally where the Great Plains began, I was aware of the exploits of the Buffalo Skinners from regional history and had seen that gruesomely depicted in Dances with Wolves not long before. So it made me curious how far big country might delve into the destruction of another people's culture, or economic systems, or placing high value on what resources one might profit from in the moment, with no concern regarding your impact on others. I got the cassette tape and popped it into the tape deck. I was meeting friends for happy hour. I was in a line of cars at a stoplight almost immediately, and as the cutting guitars and sonorous big diesel sound of Alone was playing, I took a quick look at the picture of the band. I remember seeing all that leather, and the hard rock sound made me think, what, are they trying to become Queen? I noticed that there were only three. Where was the drummer? As Seven Waves started, I thought, that's it, the windows are going down. Normally, I'd be self-conscious about doing something like that, but the sound was incredible. I mean, I can't be the only one, right, who was subjected to Poison and those other hair metal bands by friends and being told they were good. And then when you'd counter with, yeah, my band can rock out even better than your band, just listen to the musicianship, you found yourself willing the speakers to squeeze out more sound from the murkiness of Flame of the West or Tall Ships Go, or bring the heavy guitars out from under the ringing guitars on other songs. Here was something that was clear, powerful, unleashed. Even Stewart's voice, which I often regarded as being muffled, was just as strong as guitars, bass, and drum. I remember running the tachometer high on my car as I got on the interstate, waiting as long as I could to shift, and the wind whipping hair around with the town falling away, and the plains and the big sky for miles and miles in the distance. Life in the vast lane, as we say out there. You know you've made an entrance when everyone in the restaurant parking lot looks at your car. I didn't care. This was my band, in its full thunder. I remember going home and listening to ships over and over on the stereo speakers. I listened carefully for direct reference to the Buffalo Skinners, but that would remain a mystery, as was, what's going on with the drummer? 
I also found it jarring to hear what I thought were honky-tonk country sounds in some songs. It worked on shifts, but felt out of place on others. I hadn't remembered hearing that from them before. I also wondered if they were trying too hard to keep a Celtic sound or audience in place on an album that had references and sounds that were definitely American. A week later, I saw at the same record store that BC were going to be in Minneapolis at Prince's venue. I was so excited, never having the opportunity to see Big Country before, and never seeing them outside of the Grammy performance when I was very young, and the In a Big Country and Look Away videos. I was working two jobs and was able to get part of the weekend off. My plan was to drive that Saturday the four hours to Minneapolis after work, see the concert, drive back the four hours, and be up for work in a couple hours on Sunday morning. That morning, it began to snow. By afternoon, it was a blizzard. I was still game to go, but the interstate was declared closed, which rarely happens where I live, as I was considering whether to go or not. Devastated. If anybody who listens to The Great Divide made that show, once you've overcome a sure bout of schadenfreude, please tell me what the show is like. I'd love to know. Given the stature and body mass of my Scandinavian-American brethren, I'm thinking I sadly missed out on a very physical mosh pit. It's ships, winding wind, seven waves, what are you working for, and selling of America, which are my top five. I love this album but the first three are difficult to unseat, so it will always reside at number four for me, a very high number four from the number one band. Hi, hi, goodbye, have at you, and stay alive. All right, and I think with that we are approaching the two-hour mark of this episode. Nearly two hours of deep dive talk. Wow. So we'll stop here, I think, and pick up next time again. That will be the third part of this discussion, and I know Tom hopes it's the last part, so we'll <laughs> see if we can do that. And so, uh, so Tom, where can people find us and all that good stuff? Tell them. As always, find us on Facebook. Look for The Great Divide Podcast. Send us an email at bigcountrypodcast at gmail.com. So let us know what you think, and we will be back next time with more bloviating on the Buffalo Skinners. Blah, blah. <laughs> blah, blah. Fare thee well, my fairy fay. All right. Good. Okay. My wife just got home. Uh oh. All right. Had to throw in your pants real quick, huh? <laughs> throw them off real quick, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the outtake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. Let's see. <laughs> yeah, good luck moving on from that. <laughs> uh, we're a family show. Come on. <laughs> more and more every time.
Hello? Hello?